Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The early years of the 13th century are especially significant for the development of the political map of Europe. From east to west and from north to south, significant events were occurring in an age when boundaries were still highly fluid. In Spain, the warriors of Christendom were achieving significant success against the Muslims. In Eastern Europe, the fall of Constantinople and soon after the arrival of the Mongols rewrote all the old rules of that region and all these events were to some degree interconnected. In the next four weeks I will talk about the main struggle for power in the northwest corner of Europe, taking place in the lands of England and France. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the siege of Chateau Gaillarde, part one of four. The Norman conquest of England of 1066 not only had a dramatic influence on the history of Britain, it also proved highly significant for the rest of Europe, because it pulled the conquered isles firmly within the political sphere of the mainland, leading to centuries of dynastic squabbles between the kingdoms of England and France. In part one this week, I will tell the story of England from the death of William the Conqueror until the formation of the mighty Angevin Empire under King Henry II. Next week I look at the same period from a French perspective. Part 3 covers Henry II's problems with his unruly sons, and the question of who would succeed him. And finally, in part 4, I look at the disastrous first years of the reign of King John of England, concentrating on the siege of Chateau Gaillard of 1203-1204, to in Normandy. To understand the centuries of Anglo-French conflict, it is necessary to go all the way back to the death of William the Conqueror in 1087 and the division of his inheritance. William's eldest son, Robert Curthouse, inherited Normandy and a younger son, William Rufus, was given England. The sudden death of William Rufus in 1100 left empty the throne of England, but Robert was unable to take advantage because at that moment he was on his return journey from the First Crusade. This allowed his younger brother, Henry, to seize the crown and declare himself as King Henry I of England. The next year, Robert attempted an invasion of England, but badly mishandled the campaign. Henry not only resisted the invasion, but soon after, himself attacked Normandy. In the year 1106, Henry I's army defeated Roberts in the Battle of Tinkerbrae. Henry captured his brother, who he kept in prison for nearly three decades, until he eventually died at Cardiff Castle 
in 1134. In this way, Henry succeeded in reuniting England and Normandy under his personal rule. During his reign, Henry I actively encouraged the intermingling of a truly Anglo-Norman aristocracy, whose culture and landholdings straddled the Channel, so that many leading nobles owned land in both parts of his realms. This political unit was to survive almost a hundred years until the year 1204. Henry's success inevitably made him a key figure in the politics of Northern Europe, a role which he took on without any hesitation. Indeed, he spent most of his reign out of England, implementing these wide ambitions. This particularly brought him into conflict with King Louis VI of France, who claimed that Henry had usurped Normandy. Louis, though, could do nothing to counter Henry. Despite his family's historical claims to the whole of France, in practice Louis had little influence outside a small area centred on Paris. A good measure at any one time of the relative strength of the two monarchies was the degree of power each could yield in the key frontier area of the Vexin, between Normandy and the royal domain of the French king. This area was of particular importance because of its close proximity to Paris and also as it was the route to the coastal cities of Normandy. As a result, it became heavily populated with newly built castles. Louis and Henry fought sporadically over the following years, with the English king generally coming off the better. He occupied the key fortress of Gisor in the Vexin and forced Louis to recognise him as overlord of Brittany and Maine. Henry was a great administrator and lawgiver and made major improvements in the workings of the Anglo-Norman government. For example, he reformed the royal treasury, which took together the accounting systems of England and Normandy under a single treasurer. He was also a highly skilled diplomat who maintained good relationship with the barons in England by granting them a charter of liberties. Yet for all Henry I's great triumphs, he failed in one vital task that of securing his inheritance. Henry's only legitimate son drowned while crossing the Channel in what became known as the White Ship Disaster. This unfortunate event opened the big question of who should succeed Henry in both England and Normandy. To try and resolve this question, Henry decided to appoint his only legitimate child, Matilda, as heir even though there was little precedent for passing inheritance through a daughter. When her younger brother died on the white ship, Matilda was 18 years old and had already been living in Germany for a decade as wife of Henry V, King of the Germans and the Holy Roman Emperor. She had grown up in great splendour in the cities and palaces of Central Europe, where she enjoyed the very heights of political power. As empress, she had served as regent when her husband was absent. However, when the emperor died early in 1125, her political role in Germany was suddenly cut short, and she had to return to England. Henry knew that Matilda would need a new husband to strengthen her claim to succession, and so sought an alliance with the Counts of Anjou. The Counts of Anjou, called the Angevins, were powerful princes who over the 10th and 11th centuries were involved in various struggles for land and power in northern and western France. Amongst their rivals were the rulers of Normandy and Brittany, and the Counts of Poitou, Blois 
Nantes and Maine, and even the kings of France. There is a growing trend among historians to picture medieval struggles for power as disputed claims over borderland regions, as opposed to clearly defined borders which are easier to draw on maps. The struggle between Anjou and Blois is an example of this, which is very typical of the period. Anjou gradually took over the border region of Touraine, gradually, inch by inch, castle by castle, with a mixture of military and diplomatic strategies. The key event was the possession of the city of Tours, an important market and communication hub, which was subsequently backed up by the building of the three great defensive castles. But castles and military campaigns were not the only tools of politics. Just as important were marriage alliances and arguments over inheritance rights. In 1128, Henry I negotiated a marriage alliance between Matilda and the eldest son of Count Folk V of Anjou, named Geoffrey, and the couple were married in a Norman Angevin border town of Le Mans. Geoffrey was a tall, energetic teenager who is said to have worn a sprig of bright yellow broom blossom in his hair, which earned him the nickname Geoffrey Plantagenet hence the name of a dynasty which would end up ruling England for centuries afterwards. As soon as the marriage was concluded, Geoffrey became Count of Anjou in his own right, and his father, Falk V, resigned the title and left for the east to become King of Jerusalem. I told some of his story in an earlier podcast on the Crusader States. For King Falk it was a diplomatic triumph to link his family to the King of England and make the first step in the bringing together of the lands that are known to historians as the Angevin Empire. Whether or not Anjou and the Anglo-Norman state would remain united for long was of course not known at the time. Much depended on biological accident on the number of children, in particular sons, born to Matilda and Geoffrey. Inheriting lands was never automatic, however. If Matilda and Geoffrey were to succeed to England and Normandy, then they would need to prepare the ground during King Henry I's lifetime. To do so, they needed a power base in both realms, control of castles and a party of supporters. Unfortunately, Henry refused this, fearing the existence of a separate centre of authority in his realm, other than his own. In 1135, Henry was quarrelling openly with his designated heirs, despite Otherwise, being an outstandingly able king, he failed to manage successfully the tensions of the succession question. And so although the king's barons swore that they would be loyal to Matilda, the moment the king died in December 1135, they began to abandon their promises. By an accident of geography, an ambitious cousin of Matilda's, named Stephen, who was brother of the Count of Blois, was in Boulogne. Importantly, he was closer to England than Matilda and Geoffrey, and managed to race across the Channel and have himself declared king. Although Stephen was crowned as king of England, he did not quickly cross back over the Channel to secure Normandy, where several private wars had broken out. A campaign between the Norman supporters of Stephen on one side and Matilda's and Geoffrey's on the other in 1137 ended in a confused stalemate. The deadlock was broken the next year when Robert of Gloucester, 
an illegitimate son of Henry I, defected to Matilda and Geoffrey, who therefore gained the initiative. While Geoffrey spent his time asserting his authority in Normandy, Matilda invaded England, and so began a period of civil war which is known as the Anarchy. Matilda's forces captured Stephen at the Battle of Lincoln in 1141, but her attempt to be crowned at Westminster collapsed in the face of bitter opposition from the London crowds. The war degenerated into a stalemate, with Matilda controlling much of the southwest of England and Stephen the southeast and the Midlands. Large parts of the rest of the country were in the hands of local barons. The situation was still fluid in April 1149 when Matilda invited her eldest son, named Henry, after his grandfather, to land on the shores of Devon to help lay claims to his rights to the English throne. Although the 16-year-old's invasion was unsuccessful, he displayed great bravery and was quickly emerging as a leader of men. In 1150, his father invested him formally as Duke of Normandy, and the title was confirmed when Henry performed homage to Louis VII of France in August 1151. Just a month later, Geoffrey unexpectedly died of fever at the age of 39, leaving the fate of the Angevin cause resting squarely on the shoulders of young Henry. Thanks to his boldness and two cases of good luck, the Duke's fortunes soon rose higher than he could ever have imagined. Firstly, on the 18th of May, 1152, in one of the greatest coups of his lifetime, Henry married Eleanor, Duchess of Aquitaine. Until just over two months before the marriage, his 28-year-old bride had been Queen of France, the wife of Louis VII. Not only this, but Eleanor brought with her the Duchy of Aquitaine, a fabulous prize whose territory comprised more than a quarter of medieval France, stretching down from Anjou in the Loire Valley to the Pyrenees in southwest France. The headstrong Eleanor had never settled well in the Parisian court. There was a marked difference between the cultures of northern France and the south. Even the languages spoken were different, the language Dual of the north contrasting with the language Doc spoken by Eleanor. While Eleanor and her entourage behaved extravagantly, Louis VII conducted himself with an austere piety, prompting Eleanor to complain in the later years that in Louis she married a monk, not a king. The relationship between the two broke down completely when Eleanor accompanied Louis on the Second Crusade in 1147 and was accused, falsely for certain, of conniving and even sleeping with her uncle, Raymond, Prince of Antioch. The Pope offered marriage counselling, but the personal differences were irreconcilable and their marriage was declared void in March 1152. Eleanor received back her own duchy but must have felt terribly vulnerable. No longer protected by the French crown, she was back on the marriage market. She had to act quickly and stealthily to avoid being abducted and an unwilling wedding forced upon her. Realising that marriage was inevitable, Eleanor did so on her own terms. She made her way to Poitou where she sent a message to Henry Plantagenet asking him to marry her. Henry wasted no time and rushed to meet Eleanor. 
their marriage ceremony was swift and discreet, but it proved to have great significance and transformed the map of France at a stroke. In Paris, King Louis was furious, having expected his vassal Henry to ask his permission, but could do nothing about it. To add to the French king's woes, a few months later, Eleanor was pregnant, and Henry had revived his plans to conquer England. A Plantagenet heir was on its way, who might one day rule Normandy, Anjou and Aquitaine together, and possibly also England. The second great stroke of luck that Henry had was the unexpected death of King Stephen's only son, Eustace. Disheartened by this blow, Stephen finally gave up his long struggle to keep the throne of England. The English had suffered greatly during the many years since Stephen's accession, and longed for a peaceful resolution of the civil war. The effects of the almost constant fighting during this period are summed up in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles. Quote, I have neither the ability nor the power to tell all the horrors nor all the torments they inflicted upon the wretched people in this country. End quote. Stephen recognised Henry as his heir in return for life possession of the throne. The peace agreement was met by great relief, and Henry was warmly welcomed in England as the bringer of peace when Stephen died the following year and was crowned Henry II. Finally, the problem of English succession had been solved. Henry had no rivals for the throne of England, allowing him time to consolidate his hold on the rest of the lands to which he lay claim. King Henry II was as dynamic as he was ambitious, and during the 1150s was able to make yet further gains. John Jenningham wrote how his grandfather, Henry I, had exercised some kind of suzerainty over neighbouring princes, which had created a protective ring around England and Normandy, and at times could provide scope for further expansion. The kings of Scotland, the Welsh princes, the Duke of Brittany, and the Count of Flanders were the most important of these vassal princes. But by the time of Henry II's secession, this protective ring had suffered incursions from all sides by those who had exploited the wars of secession. Henry made great efforts to reassert his authority over these regions. In northern Britain, Henry retook control of Northumbria, which had fallen under the effective control of the King of Scotland. He also fought a series of campaigns against the Kings of Wales until a peace was finally agreed in the 1170s. And in Flanders he re-established friendly relations with the Count, helped by family links and the wool trade, which bound Flanders and England together commercially. In northwest France, Henry used military threat to claim the County of Nantes, thus expanding his direct power into the Duchy of Brittany. He also betrothed his eldest son, known as the Young Henry, to Louis VII's daughter, Margaret, with the strategically vital borderland of Vexin as a dowry to be delivered on the celebration of the marriage. On all fronts, Henry proved an effective and forceful diplomat, by the end of the 1150s was master of more territory than would have seemed possible just a short time ago. But he had no intention of stopping there, determined to pursue all his rights at all times. The culmination of these policies was the siege of Toulouse in southern France in 1154. Toulouse was a great prize, neighbouring Aquitaine, but it was an 
exceptionally large and well-fortified city, whose ruler, Raymond V, was married to King Louis, the seventh sister. Henry sent an exceptionally large and well-equipped army, but Louis chose to help his brother-in-law, and the city could not be taken. Up until this point, the kings of England and France had kept to a peace accord, but from now on Henry and Louis repeatedly clashed on almost every issue of politics and would end up deadly rivals. So what was the purpose of King Henry II's relentlessly expansionist policy? It was not empire-building in the modern sense. Instead, the Angevin Empire can be looked at more as a family firm. The key question was what would happen on King Henry's death. Could there be a managed succession, or would civil war break out once more? It was unlikely that the entire empire could be passed on to one individual, since Henry had four sons, who each felt they had a right to their share. From a French perspective, that of the historian Georges Duby, quote, it was clear that the haphazard collection of principalities united under Henry's personal rule was doomed to fragmentation. Maps purporting to show feudal France at this period are misleading. Henry II's possessions cut a great swathe across the country, posing a serious threat to the French crown from the west. But the situation was less grave than it seemed. End quote. A different view is held by the English historian John Jenningham. Quote, Although the familial structure of the Angevin Empire might have led to its dismemberment, it was by no means inevitable that it would do so. End quote. With hindsight and without judging what constitute a so-called natural border based on the modern-day map, the Angevin Empire can be seen as more coherent than appears at first sight. Historically, since the time of the Celts in the first millennium BC, a common culture had existed on the Atlantic seaboard from the northern coast of Spain, the western coast of France, especially Brittany, and the British Isles, including Ireland. These regions were linked by sea routes, which provided far quicker communication than land routes until recent times. I am therefore inclined to side more with Ginningham in the opinion that the eventual breakup of the Angevin Empire and the final borders of France were by no means inevitable and would depend heavily on historical events and personalities. Next week I describe the events following Henry II's death and the attempts of his two surviving sons, Richard the Lionheart and John, to keep their father's accumulated territories together. I'd like to give a massive thanks to everyone who has so far given me a review on iTunes. Each review I receive is a great encouragement, and it's very useful to have feedback on what you most like about the podcast. If you have not yet done so, I encourage you to go to iTunes and add a review, perhaps saying what your favourite episode was. And don't forget to come and visit the Facebook site for the podcast at www.facebook.com stroke history europe net where I put up images, maps and information about the subjects I cover. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles and I hope you can join me next week for part two. Thank you and goodbye.